If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open them to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And as you're turning there, let me ask you a question. What are the, the marks, what would you say are the marks, the characteristics of a spiritually mature Christian? What are those things that make us spiritually mature? The first 18 verses of the book of James deals a lot with trials. In the last month, we've looked a lot at trials. But the end goal of James in verses 1 through 18 is to, is to help us grow, excuse me, help us grow towards maturity, to become a mature believer, a mature follower of Christ. In fact, look in your Bibles, verse 4. This is what he says in verse 4. He says, let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Your translation may say perfect there. That's the same Greek word. It can be translated either perfect or mature, and it often is in the New Testament. That's the goal of verses 1 through 18, to help us become mature followers of Christ. So, what does a spiritually mature follower of Christ look like? Let me share with you some characteristics that I discovered this week. It's kind of an amalgam of different pastors and theologians, some, some marks of a spiritually mature Christian. They write this. Uh, there's 11 of them, but I'll go quickly. Number one. A spiritually mature Christian is one who uh, first has a concern for others that outweighs their own personal concerns. More concerned about the, the welfare of others than they are themselves. Number two, they have the ability to detect the presence of evil before it's obvious. The Holy Spirit alerts them to evil before it is obvious to them. Number three, a spiritually mature Christian is someone who is self-disciplined. Number four, a spiritually mature Christian is someone who is compassionate. Number five, a spiritually mature Christian is someone who is involved in the life of the local church and the mission of the gospel. Number six, a spiritually mature Christian is someone who is tempered in their emotions. Number seven, a spiritually mature Christian is someone who is growing in God's word and in prayer. Number eight, this is a tough one, a spiritually mature Christian is someone who has mastered their mouth. Number nine, a spiritually mature Christian is someone who is a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. Number 10, a spiritually mature Christian is someone who exercises patience, not exercises. <laughs> Number 11, a spiritually mature Christian is someone who endures trials with a heavenly perspective and grows their faith through those trials. We could add a lot more to that, but I want to camp on that last one. That a spiritually mature Christian is someone who endures trials with a heavenly perspective, and their faith grows through that trial. That's the goal between verses 1 and 18 of the book of James. Here, between verses 13 and 18, James shows us three things to recognize when you endure a trial. If you have your Bible, let me invite you to stand together as we read God's Word. We're going to read all of James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, all the way down to verse 18. And we do that because I want you to know, I want to hammer into your head the context or the rule of context, which is that context rules. When we study the Bible, the, the meaning of the verse is found inside the verse and around the verse. So the meaning of verses 13 through 18 are found in those verses which precede it. So James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says this, James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. 
because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises, and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass, its flower falls off, and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Verse 13. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. By His own choice, He gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the ability to, to come to your house, the opportunity to come to your house and worship and encounter you through the living word of God. I pray, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would change lives in this room today. Help us, Father, to become spiritually mature followers of Christ. Help us to accomplish that. Help us to do that. Make us look more like you and less like the world. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Three things to recognize when you're enduring a trial. Number one, recognize the source of temptation. I want to bring to your mind two familiar Old Testament characters. Uh, first, the familiar story of Adam and Eve. You know the story of Adam and Eve, right? They're in the Garden of Eden, and there's a tree that's planted, and uh, God says to them what? Don't eat the fruit from the tree. And then you know what happens. We are, we're all very familiar with this story. Uh, the serpent slithers into the garden. Eve pulls off the fruit. Adam, it kind of reads that Adam is kind of like cowering back to see what would happen. Eve picks the fruit. She tastes it. She walks over to Adam. She saw that it was good, tasted really delicious. Walked over to Adam. He tried it. And then they were caught, literally red-handed, uh, caught doing the thing that God told them not to do. And so do you remember when God showed up in the garden and he's walking in the garden and he says, Adam, where are you? What, what, what have you done? And do you remember Adam's words? Let me, let me read it to you. God first says, Adam, did you eat from the fruit of the tree that I told you not to eat from? 
And then Adam says this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 12. He says, that woman that you gave me, Lord, that woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree and then I ate it. In other words, this is your fault, God. You did this. You made that woman and you gave her to me and now I've got to pay the price. That's the first Old Testament character I want in your mind. The second is Job. Do you remember the story of Job? In Job chapter 1, Job loses everything. And the way that story reads is like Job is just kind of hanging out one day and then one messenger comes with a horrendous message and as he's speaking, another comes with a horrendous message and as he's speaking, another comes with a horrendous message and when he's speaking, another comes with a horrendous... It's like back to back to back to back. First, the Bible records that a, a servant came and he says... Job, all of your donkeys and your oxen, his business, all of your donkeys and oxen, they were stolen by bandits. And many of your servants were killed in the, in the process. And while he was speaking, someone came up to him and said, Job, fire fell from heaven and burned the sheep and all the workers and the servants in the field. And while he was speaking, someone came up after him and said, Job, Another raid came, and when they came, they took all of your camels and killed all of your workers. And then another came while he was still speaking. And the worst of all, he said, Job, your sons and your daughters, they were killed, all of them, in, in something like a tornado, a strong wind. Like, can you imagine the devastation that Job felt as bang, 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 bang. Horrible news, horrible news, horrible news. And then his children. If there was anyone who had maybe some, if there was anyone who we could understand anyways that would say, God, why did you let this happen? God, God, what did you do? God, God, this is, what are you doing? If there was anyone who might have had some case to blame God for his own trials, it would have been Job. He would have been wrong in doing so, but he, we would have understood it. But Job doesn't do that. In fact, Job chapter 1, verse 22, the Bible says that throughout all of this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. And what's beautiful, if you keep reading the book of Job, you come to Job chapter 13, verse 15, and he goes a step further. Not only is he not blaming God, but look at what he does in Job 13, 15. He says this, powerful words. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. One translation says, even if he kills me, I will hope in him. You see the difference between Job and Adam? Job didn't blame God, but Adam, well, Adam did. Job demonstrated spiritual maturity, and Adam demonstrated spiritual immaturity. Adam blamed God for his troubles and in doing so demonstrated his spiritual immaturity. And that's what James says to remember when you're tempted, when temptation comes your way, remember it cannot be God's fault. That's what he says. Look at verse 13. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt Anyone. In other words, if you're in a trial, don't blame God for the temptation that may come with 
the trial. There's a difference between a trial and a temptation. You should know that. Trials can and do come from God. Oftentimes, God will send a trial. And when He does send a trial, He does so with the the, the purpose of making you a stronger, more mature believer in Christ. When He sends you a trial, the purpose is for you to grow, not for you to trip up. And when that trial comes, and when your world's falling apart, and you're tempted to say, God, what are you doing? God, this is your fault. No, that's not from God. God sent the trial so that you would be strengthened. He cannot tempt you. He cannot tempt you to sin. That stands against everything that he is. So the question then is, where does the temptation come from? Well, look in your Bibles, verse 14. It says, each person is tempted... When he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. So where does temptation come from? You. That's what it says. Verse 14. When each person is tempted by his own evil desire. Now surely we know that temptation can come from Satan. He can tempt us. But James points out that when you're the one, it's you. You're the one who gets tempted. And he says here that, that when each person is drawn away and enticed, how many uh, fishermen do we have in the room? How, have you guys ever fished without a hook? Like just with a minnow in your hand? Anyone ever done that? The, the words here for drawn away and enticed, they're like fishing terms, maybe even hunting terms. It's this idea that you, that you set the bait and you trap them. I want you to watch this quick video of a man who, I want you to watch what he does. He's got a minnow in his hand and watch what he does with the minnow as he entices the fish. I, I did that one time too, but I didn't get a video of it. That's why I had to show. That's why I had to show that one. Hey, that, that is a visual picture of the words enticed and drawn away. And listen, James says it's your own evil desire that entices you and draws you away. And listen, we know that Satan can tempt us. We get that. We get that. We understand that when we get to heaven and stand before God, we can't say, well, the devil made me do it, right? That won't work. It's your own, temptation comes from your own evil desire. So when you're going through a trial, understand that God does not tempt. He cannot tempt. Instead, when you're going through a trial and you're tempted to sin against God, remember, or rather recognize the source of temptation. And secondly, recognize the pattern of sin. During the, the COVID years, um, we learned a lot about viruses. And I think, I think that's in large part because we were in the throes of battle with Grayson as he was going through his leukemia battle. And during those years, we, <laughs> we learned a ton about viruses. I remember doctors would come into the room and I would always ask them if they wanted my help. And I would tell them that uh, I am an AMD, an almost medical doctor. And I would tell them that I got my degree, my AMD degree from Dr. Google. And so I would ask them, like, do you, do you need some 
do you need some advice? And they never took me up on my offer. And I still can't figure out, figure out why. And they never laughed at my joke, just like you didn't laugh at my joke. <laughs> but if there's one thing Brian Veal is good at, it's telling bad jokes over and over and over again. Amen? Yeah. Hurts my feelings every time. Viruses are this odd thing, right? Like these viruses, uh, they're like this living organism that comes into your body and it replicates and multiplies and replicates and multiplies. And then your body, if your body is healthy, it produces kind of like fighter cells. So when you get sick, just imagine inside your body, there's like an MMA fight happening between the virus and the the white blood cells. They're They're trying to destroy one another. And here's what happens. If your white blood cells, if your, if your body cannot fight off that virus, the virus continues to grow and grow and replicate and replicate until eventually it kills its host. And the one who had the virus succumbs to death. That's a picture of what sin does for us. Look in verse 17. That's the pattern of sin. Verse 15 says this, Then after sin, or excuse me, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Temptations lead to desire. Desire gives birth to sin. And those last five words in verse 15, look at them again. They are shocking to me. Look at this. Sin gives birth to death. You see how opposite that is? Sin, like a virus, kills its host. Sin promises so very much. But the promises of sin are always empty promises. And when the temptation to come, when the temptation to sin comes, and you're in the midst of the trial, and temptation to sin comes, remember that all the promises that you hear are lies from the pits of hell. You're struggling in your marriage, and some man pays you attention, pays a little extra attention to you, and you think, well, my husband doesn't look at me that way. You think, well, Maybe I'm meant to be with him. Don't believe that. Don't believe that. It will find you out. It will ruin your life and ruin your family. You got an opportunity to get a promotion at work. And so you badmouth everybody else in order to make yourself look really good. Don't do that. Don't do that. You don't need to put anyone else down to make yourself look better in the hopes that you might receive a promotion. And you may ration, well, they won't find out about it, but they will. And then you'll lose a friend. And by the way, everyone around you will see through that. Sin promises so much, but it lies to us every time. It does not give us life. It gives us death. So when you're going through a trial and you're tempted to sin against God, recognize the source of temptation, recognize the pattern of sin, and lastly, recognize the author of good. The the way that James concludes this little section on trials is so fascinating, so beautiful. He writes writes to a people who are enduring immense trials. And he's telling them to endure, to, to grow towards maturity. And he's reminding them that God can't tempt them, that temptation comes from within. And that temptation to sin always gives birth 
to death. It always leads to death. And then he reminds them of this eternal truth. Now, I know, I know you're going to be able to finish this sentence. We haven't done this here for a long time, but I, I want to do this with you just to see if you know the, the, the saying. Are you ready? I'm going to say something, and you're, you're going to know exactly what to reply. Are you ready? God is good all the time. Let's say it again. And now everyone, God is good all the time. God is good all the time. God is good. Don't ever, ever forget that. I was talking to a buddy of mine um, earlier this week who he and his family are in the midst of an incredible trial dealing with the medical diagnosis of one of his children. And uh, he's dealing with all the things that all of us would be dealing with. Fear, dread, confusion, frustration, anger. And I told him the only thing I could tell him from a position of having, having been there before, the best advice I could give him was that God is good even when it feels like he's not. He's still good. That God is good all the time. Even when everything in you wants to cry out, God, why don't you fix this? Why haven't you fixed this? Why didn't you fix this? God is still good all the time. That's one of the greatest lessons we can learn in life, that God is good all the time, especially when you're enduring trials and it feels like he's not good. He's still good. Look at verse 16. James says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. James shows us three qualities of God in two verses. Uh, number one, God is good. Every perfect gift that you have, every good thing that you enjoy in life is from the Lord. God is good. Number two, God is always giving good to his children. The, the tense of that verb there is in the, it's, it's a, a perfect participle, which means that it's always happening. God is always giving uh, good gifts to his children. God is good and he is always giving good gifts to his children. And number three, God never changes. Look at the end of verse 17. It says, The Father of lights does not change like shifting shadows. I read a story, maybe you've heard this, uh, earlier this week. It was in a commentary uh, about an old music teacher. And someone walked into him and said, Hey, what's, what's the good news today? And the old music teacher stood up, walked across the room, and he grabbed a tuning fork, and he, he, he rang it, and he said, you hear that? That's the note A. That's the A note. That's been the A note 5,000 years ago. That'll be the A note 10,000 years from now. The soprano sings off key, the tenor across the hall, he, he's out of tune. But that, that's the A note. And that's the good news for today. The A note never changes. In the same way, God never changes. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. He's good all the time because he doesn't change like the shifting shadows that you see around you. And if you need evidence for that, it's found in verse 18. Look in verse 18. It says, By his own choice, he gave us birth 
by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Sin gives birth to death. But Christ gives birth to life. Following Christ means we get eternal life forever. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be the kind of first fruits of his creation. Listen, if you need a reminder that God is good, especially when you're going through trials, you set your sights on heaven and you ponder heaven and you think about how awesome heaven will be and you think about how long heaven will be, eternally long. It will never end. And you get to enjoy all of that precisely because God is good. If, if you've repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, you get to enjoy all of that. It's the only way to salvation. To repent of your sins and believe in the finished work of Christ and believe that he died on the cross for you and that he rose again three days later. If you believe that and repent of your sins, you will be saved. And then you will enjoy, you will enjoy Jesus forevermore. You will enjoy heaven for all of eternity. God is so, so Good. Remember that as you endure trials. Listen, uh, trials are... I mentioned to Carla yesterday, we've talked about trials for the last three weeks. I said, I just feel like we're talking about trials too much. And she said, that's just life. Trials are just a part of life. We can't get away away from it. It's not always in a trial, but it's just a part of life. And that's what the Word talks about. In the first 18 verses, he's all talking about trials. They're a part of life and we can't escape them. But those trials can and should lead us to spiritual maturity. And my prayer for you is that you would look more like Job and less like Adam. That you, like Job, would be able to say, though He slay me, yet I will worship. That you endure your trials with that mindset. That's my prayer for you. And when you do that, when you endure the trials of life, and you say, though he slay me, yet I will worship. When you do that, you send a message to a lost and dying world that God is good, even in the midst of your heart heartache, Heartache, hurt, and pain. God is good all the time. And to Him alone be the glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we are grateful for You. We are grateful that You are good and kind. We are grateful that You have a purpose behind our trials and our hurt. And Father, I pray that today You would give us that heavenly perspective I know today there are so many people here enduring trials of of life. I pray, God, you would help them to become spiritually mature. Help us all to become spiritually mature followers of Jesus. Help us to endure. Help us not to walk away from the faith because bad things happen to good people. But instead, Lord, help us to see. Help us to see that every good and perfect gift is from above. And even in our trials... You've given those to us to strengthen us, to grow us up, and to help minister to others. 
Father, we pray you would have your way here this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.